Well, thank you, choir. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started a brand new series entitled Burning Questions. Uh, The topic specifically there is marriage and relationships. You know, it's a series designed to aim for and to aim at those who are married as well as those who are unmarried right now. As you expect that you're going to be married at some point in the future, Uh, this series hopefully is um, something that is... uh, Uh, impacting both sets, married and unmarried alike. That's the design of it. We call it burning questions because it's really geared around questions that you have submitted. If you weren't here for the first couple of Sundays that we started this this series, then you don't know the backdrop, really. And the backdrop is that for, oh, about six weeks or so now, I guess, people have been turning in questions anonymously. Most of those have come in through a drop box there in our lobby. Others have been submitted uh, online, all of them anonymous. And uh, I just simply pull certain questions or certain groups of questions each Sunday, and we, uh, we build a message around that. The goal is to hear what God's perspective is on these topics, these burning questions that you would probably never ask in a crowded room. You'd probably never say, hey, I've got a question back here on the 14th row. You'd probably never do that, but when it's anonymous and you can just submit it, and then that's what we're getting. And so we've had uh, right around 50 cards that have been turned in. Some of those are slap full of questions. Some of them have numerous questions on the cards, so probably well over 100 questions that are there. Now, I won't be able to get to every one of them, obviously, in a sermon, in a message like this. We are uh, setting up uh, uh, an an online blog to be able to help answer some of those uh, in the future as well. So we'll give you more info as we move through this series. But right now it looks like we'll be through this series through uh, at least through the month of uh, August and pretty much well into September as well. So I hope that it's been helpful for you up to this point. Here's a little recap. For those of you that weren't here the very first Sunday of it, we talked about the foundation of marriage. That's what we looked at. There was uh, uh, some good questions that were turned in that really gave, a, or a comment actually, that really gave a, uh, an opportunity to look at what Scripture says about the foundation of marriage. What we learned there in a nutshell was that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. It, we don't look at marriage from the world's perspective. That it, uh, The world looks at marriage as a contract that can be broken any time for any reason. You just sort of cut and run whenever you're ready to do that. And that's not the way Scripture looks at marriage. Now, the assumption is, is that when you ask these questions, you want to know God's perspective, right? We're in a church. You know, we look at Scripture every Sunday. And so from God's perspective, marriage is a covenant. It is a mutually binding choice made between two people before God. And so marriage is a covenant, not a contract. We will come back to that throughout this whole series because it is the foundation. You've got to, and I have to have to have that mindset that marriage is a covenant. Well, last week we looked at the, uh, the most often asked questions so far to date. Almost 20% of the questions that have come in of 50 cards that were turned in, almost 20% of those cards had something to do with the issue of leadership, spiritual leadership within the marriage. And so we sifted those through Scripture as well last week. And we saw the responsibility that every husband carries to lead his marriage, to lead his family the way God has called him to. To the wives, we just kind of summarize things by saying that if you have a husband who is not a Christian as you are or is not leading your family uh, uh, in the way that God has called him to, then actions speak louder than words. First Peter chapter 2 is real clear in that, that you're going to win him and you're going to impact him when you set before him consistently a godly example through your character. Actions speak louder than words. To the husbands last week, I said that if you're not leading your family, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, leading that marriage uh, uh, biblically, then the admonition that we found in Scripture was that for you, you can never lead on empty, and so you have to stay full of Christ in your relationship with God. You'll never impact your marriage. You'll never impact your family for the cause of Christ unless you yourself are full. And there are no free passes. Listen, if I'm not close to God, my family recognizes it far before anybody else does. And so... 
There are no free passes. You may have been a Christian for 30 years. You can't coast on that. Why? Because that tank has to be filled every single day in regards to, to uh, you d- uh, d- demonstrating and embodying the character of Christ. And so for you to impact your family, guys, have to stay close to Christ. And then for the singles last Sunday, to those that are unmarried, I said that, and I made mention and supported it from Scripture as well, that passion for Christ has to be the highest, the highest character quality that you'll find in any future spouse. If you hope to be married one day, you make sure that that person that you marry, whether husband or wife, that they have a deep, deep walk with Christ, a passion for Christ that has to be the top of the heap beyond any other quality that they're going to carry. Well, this Sunday, we're going to look at, a, at a, another uh, set of questions that were turned in five we'll get to in just a moment. But I want to give you the title of the message this morning. And then as we move through this message, you're going to hopefully be able to understand a little bit of what it means. The simple title of this morning's message is In Love or With Love. In Love or With with love. And as we move through the questions that we're going to see here in just a moment, as we move through some passages in the New Testament, hopefully what we'll understand is what does love look like when it's demonstrated on a day-by-day basis? Well, let's roll through some of the questions. Five questions this morning that I'm going to pull out of ones that were submitted over these last six weeks or so. Let's read through them one by one, all of them anonymous. What does the Word of God say regarding marriage where one spouse elects to withhold love and affection from the other spouse... There's a general lack of respect or caring affection for the marriage partner. Does God want us to be long-suffering on a marriage relationship such as this? Great question. The next slide. Why do people who love one another seem to hurt each other so badly? A third slide. Why is marriage so hard sometimes? How can you get along and not argue? The next question. What do you do when your wife doesn't love you anymore and life is so bad that suicide seems like the best way out? Let me just stop here for a moment before we see the last slide. This card was turned in anonymously one of the first couple of weeks that we began collecting cards. And I hope that you can hear beneath the surface there the cry of this person's heart who may very well be here this morning. Here's what I want to make a point on, and we won't camp here long, but here's something I want to emphasize, that marital hurt, whenever there is hurt within the marriage context, marital hurt is the deepest of any hurt that you will ever experience on a relational level. It is more hurtful. uh, Hurting within one's marriage is more hurtful than losing a job. You could get fired from your job in a moment's notice. You never even saw it coming. You were in that company for 30 years. You had had invested blood, sweat, and tears in that company. You could have them send you packing right out that side door, and yet marital hurt far surpasses any kind of hurt like that. You can be stabbed in the back by the closest friend that you had ever known, someone you grew up with from the earliest of days, and they just trash your character, and they speak behind your back and all that can happen that friendship come to an end does not even come close to the hurt that comes in one's marriage you can file bankruptcy you can see everything that you've worked for dissolve before your very eyes doesn't even come close to the type of hurt the level of hurt that comes in one's marriage why because marital hurt uh, uh, is a result whenever conflict comes whenever those 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 uh, difficulties come it is at the point of greatest trust between you and another person I don't trust anybody else on the face of this earth like I trust my wife. I have not invested myself, my heart, my fears, my life in any other person than as I have to my wife, to Susie. And it's the same for those of you who are married. Whenever you step into that marriage, you took it so seriously that you put everything on the table. Yeah, there are places for us to grow in. Yeah, we have, have, have a, a room to, to, uh, 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 to grow in regards to, to our character and as people. But whenever we come to marriage, we just lay it all on the table. 
And whenever there is hurt within the context of one's marriage, it goes deeper than any other relationship that we have. And this question reflects that. However, in the midst of that hurt, we are never in a place, listen, never in a place of hopelessness. Because the highest relationship is our relationship with God. If we have a relationship with Christ. The last slide and then we'll move forward. What is love? That's the question we deal with this morning. All five of those slides, all five of those questions submitted over the course of this last month and a half or so basically are asking much the same thing. What does love look like within the context of marriage, within the context of relationship with another person? You know, the world tells us that, that, uh, that love is more of an emotional feeling. Love tells us that, that it is uh, something that springs from a heart and really goes, doesn't go much deeper at all. It just changed with the shifting sense. Is, is love primarily an emotion, would you say? Or is love more? Is love an action? As somebody I talked to this week made mention, is love more of a noun or is love more of a verb? How do we really describe what love is? Is it something that is just kind of a giggly, warm, fuzzy feeling? Or is there more to it from God's perspective? Uh, scripture, thankfully for us, it answers that question. It helps us to unpack and it helps us to understand exactly how God defines love, exactly how God has demonstrated love, and it helps us to be able ultimately to see what love is, what is to be built on and what it looks like whenever it's demonstrated. This past, uh, this past week, a few nights ago, our family went out to eat and uh, we went to Cancun here on the island. And uh, I, I like going to Cancun. Anything that offers free food like chips is a good place as far as I'm concerned. So I like going to uh, Cancun. So our family loaded up the van. We went to Cancun. And uh, it was crowded. Man, there were cars everywhere. And so I pull into this parking place kind of on the, uh, on the curb there. It wasn't a space as much as it was an open spot on a curb. And so I parked there. Well, I, I, uh, I decided after I parked that... Um, that I didn't like that, that parking place very much. And so I decided I'm going to back out. I'm going to find me another parking place. And so put the van in reverse, and I start backing out. And I, well, you, well let me just say, you would think those yellow posts would be a little taller, right? <laughs> You'd think. And I heard the sound. You know, you ever heard that sound, you know? And I, and I, it sounded like the, the rear door of the van was about to hit the back of my head. That's about what it sounded like. Like it was just going all the way up through the interior of the van to where I was saying, that's what it sounded like. Now, the whole reason I was moving, by the way, was because there was a truck over here a little too close. And I was afraid he was going to hit me when he, when he backed down. <laughs> I forgot that until, uh, until recently. And so, um, so that, that was why I was backing out. Now, now, guys, have you ever done anything like that? Hey, help me here. Help a brother out, all right? Have you ever done anything like that? All right, I see one hand in the back. That's good. A uh, couple hands. Let's say confession time. Any others? I see that hand. I see that hand. All right. Yeah, at those times, does your wife just look at you? I mean, whether it's backing up into a pole or deciding you're going to wash the cat in the tub or whatever it might be, you know, her wedding dress, it's been a while, you know, let's just wash it, you know, whatever the thing is, does she ever look at you those times and just say, you are just so awesome, <laughs> do, do, you know, are there, are, are there a lot of warm fuzzies there? Probably not. If love was an emotion, she would have to say at that moment, I don't think I'm in love right now at this very moment. Why? Because love is so much, thankfully, so much more than an emotion. It is, not, uh, it is not something that merely is at the emotional level. Yes, that's a part of it. 
But that is not the, the characterization of what love is. Love is an emotion, but it is also, even more so, first, it is an action. It is a verb. It is a commitment. And whenever we look in Scripture, what we find is, is that there is a chapter in Scripture that defines for us, it describes, it lays out for us in, in very clear terms what love looks like whenever it is put into action. The context of this chapter is not marriage, but let me just say, uh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the box, but I think I am sharp enough to realize that if this chapter applies to other relationships, would it not especially apply to the context of marriage? And so the passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And while you're turning there, let me just give a little caution to those of you who have been reading your Bibles for a long time. Because the temptation is, is that when I mention 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to be thinking, oh, this is only effective for the introduction to wedding services. Because that's where we hear it, right? Oh, I'm so familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. I thought, surely, when we were going to be looking at love, I thought, surely, Brooks, for you, I mean, come on, you've had all week to prepare this message for crying out loud. I thought for sure you're going to find some nugget of truth buried down in the book of Malachi somewhere, right? You're going to whip out Obadiah and say, here you go, right here, verse 12. Look at this, you've never seen it before. No, it's so simple and so clear that we forget it's even there. And yet I know of no other passage of Scripture that so clearly describes for us on a human relational level what love looks like when it's put into practice. Now before we read this, let me, let me just, just uh, explain something that will help us in the context. In the Greek language, there were four words primarily used to describe love. You know, we just have the word love. It covers everything, doesn't it? Love. You love the Braves? Oh, yeah. You love the Bulldogs? Oh, yeah. You love Georgia Tech? Oh, yeah. You love, uh, you love ice cream? Oh, yeah. You love your wife? Oh, yeah. You love your hunting dog? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just that one word, love. That's all we have to describe. Well, in the Greek language, you know, the New Testament that you hold is written 2,000 years ago. God wrote it. He wrote it through people. And in the Greek language, there were four words used. They got this better than we do in our language. They understood there were different types of love. And there are four words primarily. In the Greek language, you'll find the word eros. It's from which we get our English word erotic. It is a, uh, it is an, a, a, a romantic type of love, the Greek word eros. It's a word that describes a love that changes with the emotions. There's no, no real root that's there. It's just driven by emotions, driven by romance, so to speak. The word eros. Well, there's a second word in the Greek language that describes love. It's the word philos, or the, the verb form would be phileo. And that describes more of a brotherly kindness kind of a love. We get the English word philanthropy. Uh, something done, a deed done out of love for a man. It comes from that Greek word. Philadelphia is the word that's always used as an example. The city of what? Brotherly love. That's the Greek word philos. Well, there's a third Greek word. It's the Greek word storge, which describes a, a family love, love between family members that describes that special bond between those that are a part of the same human family. And then there's a fourth Greek word, and it's the Greek word agape. The Greek verb form is agapao, and it means a, an unconditional love, a love with no strings attached, a love that only, does not respond only when another responds first. It is a love that is shown unconditionally, agape. It's that word, agape, that we read of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 
13. And so let's pick up here, verse, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's begin in verse 4, and we're going to read down through the first part of verse 8. I'll read through it, and then I'm going to move back through it a little more slowly and look at each of these descriptions a little more closely. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You know, that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is not a technical manual. It's not a book that we read that gives us all of the technical aspects, the specs of love, for example. This is a how-to manual. This is a passage of Scripture that when it's written and you read through it, you go away understanding, okay, this is what love looks like. It is a simple biblical explanation that answers the question, what is love? Here you go. Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, verses 4 through 8 gives us a great, great starting point. And so this is more of a how-to manual. But as you read through it, you see that this is the bullseye of what God is aiming for. There's not one person here, and if you raise your hand, you're a liar. There's not one person here that can say, hey, I've nailed this. Let's move on. Can we get to 1 Corinthians 14, please, because I'm way past all this? No, this is the bullseye. There's only one that has embodied this love, and his name is Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, we seek to aim for this bullseye as we live out the Christian life within the context of relationships. We seek to embody this, to reflect this, to apply this, but only one has done it and does it perfectly. And so all of us are works in progress. It doesn't excuse poor behavior, but all of us are works in progress. And so Let's work through this list here a little more slowly, and then I'm going to summarize it for you in a simple principle. So verse 4, it says the first quality, and interesting that this is listed first in this list, is that love is patient. How many of you are not patient people by nature, and you need a support group to help you with that? All right, I see your hands, all right? Not all, of, not, not all people are patient individuals. You, know, you pull up with your buggy to the, to the grocery line, and there are 20 people, and there's that person who bought the one item that didn't have the price on it right, and it's all the way back, like in the, you know, in the frozen foods, and you're sitting there waiting, and you've got to be somewhere because you didn't leave early enough. And you were, you, you know, your blood pressure just kind of starts to go up a little bit. Why, well, you have a problem with patience, right? And a lot of us would have to say that there are times where we are not patient people. He lists this first, and I believe for a reason, this particular word for patient in the Greek language describes patience as it relates to relationships, not circumstances. In other words, Paul is not talking here about our patience whenever the line is too long or whenever the light won't turn green or or whatever, things aren't going well at work. He's not talking about that kind of patience here. This word, uh, when when it was written in Greek, relates almost exclusively to patience between people. <laughs> and I, I have a, a, the, the man in ministry, perhaps, who has impacted my ministry the most. His name is Jim. You've met him before. He did our wedding. He did my dad's funeral. He spoke here at my ordination. He came on our anniversary. He's been such a huge part of my life. When Susie and I went through premarital with him, because uh, he did our wedding and he required it, uh, we went through premarital. We drove all the way to Macon, Georgia. We had our premarital all in one day. It was like drinking out of a fire hydrant, right? You know, you just, got to, just try to get a little sip as it all comes rushing past. And then we drove back. 
And he made a statement that has stuck with me. And I still use it still today. It's not original to me. I stole it and I'm proud of it. He made a statement. He said that in marriage, your spouse is like heavenly sandpaper. (laughs) Boy, that nails it, doesn't it? (laughs) God wants you to be like Jesus, and the tool he's going to use more than any other is going to be the person you're married to. There's a lot of sandpaper, and there's a lot of heavenly, right, at times, depending on what day you are on. Got to be patient. God says, The first embodiment. If you want to know what love is, love first before any other discussion is patient. Second, he says, verse 4, he says, love is kind. Have you ever wondered why? You know, the question was asked, why do people who love each other argue so much or something along those lines? Have you ever wondered how easy for those of you that are, that are married or if you've been in, a, in a, a serious relationship for a long time, have you ever wondered why sometimes the longer time goes on, the easier it is to take kindness for granted? You know, sometimes it can be the first quality to go. You just take, take it for, for granted. And the little things that express kindness that were there whenever you were dating, whenever you were uh, first getting to know each other, sometimes those little, those little details of simple acts of kindness sometimes fall by the wayside. God says here, verse 4, that love is first patient, but love is also kind. He goes on to say in verse 4 that it's not jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love is not arrogant. In other words, it puts the other person first. It doesn't put self first. You want to know what love looks like? Love looks a lot like second place. He goes on to say, as he moves through this, what I would say, a fairly lengthy list, one that's going to keep me busy for the rest of my life. He goes on to say in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it's not rude. It doesn't put down. Guys, have you ever said things about your wife at work, on the golf course, with your buddies, something negative that you would never say to her face? That's what love looks like when it acts unbecomingly. That's not a description of love. Ladies, have you ever run your husband down? Have you ever just worked them over when you're with your friends and they weren't there to defend themselves? Maybe you're irritated, you're just a little aggravated, and maybe even rightly so. But somewhere along the way, you just put him down and you don't really give the full story. That's love acting unbecomingly, and love doesn't do that. He goes on to say it does not seek its own. It's not provoked. You know, there are times whenever issues linger for so long that they're never resolved, and they just continue on and on and on, that that it takes just the smallest little thing. It's like the straw that broke the camel's back, tossed on top, that causes everything to fall apart. And sometimes, to be honest, husbands, wives, you know the button to push to set your spouse off when you want to get at them, don't you? I mean, you've been with them for a while. You know where those buttons are. Love doesn't push them, even though you know you could. Love is not easily provoked. Love never seeks its own, doesn't blow up. Look at what it says further in verse 5. 
it says it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Have you got your list? That mental list? Remember what she did last year? You remember what he did back in the 90s? You remember what it was that he said last week and you hadn't gotten over it? You got that list up there? You've been wanting her to do this forever and ever and ever and she won't do it. And so you got that list that you're keeping in the back of your mind and you go back to it whenever it's needed. She may not even know it's there. He might not even know it exists. But it's that list. It's that mental inventory of where they failed you. Scripture says that love doesn't have that list. Oh, there, there's one who could. <laughs> Listen, I'll, tell you, I'll be honest. Jesus could have a list on me from here to heaven. But you know what? He, he doesn't bring it up to me. Where it's forgiven, it's gone. Like, he doesn't excuse me. He doesn't excuse me from doing what I shouldn't do. If I step out of line later today, and I probably will, he doesn't excuse that. He'll deal with me. He'll discipline me. He'll convict me, and rightly so. He doesn't want me to hit the ditch out there somewhere. He'll deal with me because he loves me. He'll discipline me because he loves me, and he does. But the thing he will not do is that he will never throw up a failure, a sin from my past that Jesus has already covered by his blood. He died on a cross to forgive. He will never pull that up. And whenever I sense that in my life about what I did last year, what I said last month, or what went on 10 years ago, if that's already forgiven and it comes back to my mind, unless it's for me to learn from it, unless it's a warning that I not go down that path again, if it's only for condemnation, that is not of my Savior because he doesn't do that. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He does not keep a list of my sins. If you were to go to him and bang on heaven's door and say, I'm sick and tired of this fellow Brooks speaking into my life. I can't stand him. He talks too long. He talks too fast. He can't drive a van. God, tell me what you got on him. He'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't that awesome? And yet in marriage, it seems as though it's so easy to keep that list. Love doesn't do that. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. I remember probably 20, 25 years ago, I heard the old statement that marriage is 50-50. You heard that right? Marriage is 50-50. You pull your half and she pulls her half. 50-50, you, you, know, you each kind of meet in the middle, and there you go. That's what marriage is comprised of. And then some people came along, and I guess it was like, I don't know, a bumper sticker movement or something. And uh, you know, they said, no, marriage is not 50-50. This thing is 100-100. Marriage is 100. You don't do your half, and she does her half. You do 100, she does 100. And you meet in the middle, and then you hold hands, and then you move on. It's 100-100, right? Right. I want to just submit a little something to consider. What if marriage is not 100-100? What if, in my mindset, it should be 100-0? In other words, I do my 100. <laughs> and I seek to embody this list to my wife, to Susie. And I seek to work through this list every day. And I try to embody what it looks like to, uh, to love the way that Jesus loves me. And I seek to do that. And what if my half of this deal is 100, but as for her, I treat her half as zero. In other words, I'm not waiting for her to reciprocate. And I'm not waiting for her to respond, though gladly she does far more than I do. What if I were to sit here and I'm only going to do what she meets in the middle? That's not marriage. That's a good deal. 
And the contract of marriage and the unconditional nature of marriage, defined by the word agape itself, embodied by Jesus on the cross, that Romans 5, 8 says that even while we were sinners, he was there that he loved us. That whenever I take that and put it in the context of marriage, my marriage then, from my mind's perspective, has to be 100-0. That I'm just called to do and to do and to do and to love and to be committed. And yes, it's an emotional, but even first, it's an act of commitment. And as I do that, it doesn't matter what comes back. That's love. That's what it looks like. And no, I didn't submit my life nine years ago so that I could give and never return and have nothing returned. No, I didn't desire. Yeah, it's, it's fine for us, humanly speaking, to want love. We're created to be receivers of love. But my perspective must be that I only, or that I give it without looking for it to be matched. And if we only look for it to be matched, there will be, listen, there will be a limit to our love. And I don't want that. So how do you summarize all this? Let me just give you a quick little statement, and I'll be, begin to, to close. In every relationship, the presence of grace and humility are crucial. How do we summarize chapter 13, the passages we read? I would summarize it this way. In every relationship, and it's not just marriage, by the way. Every relationship, the presence of grace and humility are absolutely crucial. Why is that? Grace to extend when the other person falls short. And humility to own up to the times when we ourselves fall short. Here's what I've seen. And I wish I had about 10 more minutes, but here's what I've seen. I've been in pastoral ministry for 10 years. I've been in ministry primarily to, to students before that. Those students had families. Those students had parents. Those parents often had issues that trickled down to the kids. And so for over 20 years now in the context of ministry, I've been dealing with uh, 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 marital types of issues. And for nine years, I've been married myself. And I ain't the most perfect guy on the face of the earth. So I got my own little issues that come along, right? Hopefully learned a few things at least along the way. And here's what I found. That whenever things are at such a point to where it is so explosive that you have to involve another person in the conversation, what I've often seen is that in many cases you've got a husband who's bunkered down in his bunker, let's call that a ditch, and you've got a wife who's bunkered down in her bunker, let's call that a ditch, and they're there, and the only time they pop their head out is to throw something to the other side that will bring harm. And if and it sounds so simple, it, 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 I guess perhaps that's why it's often dismissed, is that if only those two people who have committed their lives together in the presence of witnesses before God who've said we will love until death do us part, if only they would be willing to come and to say, you know, you failed me and you have hurt me, and yet I, because of my relationship with Christ, extend forgiveness and grace to you. And I wipe the slate clean and I give you a fresh start. And if that other person would only be willing to say, you know, in humility, I humble myself and I have wronged you and I've hurt you and I've failed you and I ask you to forgive me. Listen, you're talking minutes to seeing things resolved at that point. When grace extended to another and humility applied to ourselves are in place. And yet what often happens 
is this. I'm not going to forgive until. And there you hang the price tag on your unconditional love. And it's there that you apply the condition to that which God has called you to extend without any price whatsoever attached. How do I do this? (laughs) I can't. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Now go in peace. (laughs) I can't accept for my walk with God. Just listen to what it says. 1 John chapter 4. Don't turn there for the sake of time. You can jot it down. 1 John 4, verse 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians chapter 5, listen to the similarities to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. Galatians 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. How do I love the way God's called me to? How do I love my wife, Susie, in the way that I desire to? In a way that keeps Brooks out of the way, that doesn't keep pushing myself selfishly to the front? How do I love in a way that there are no strings attached, that doesn't wait until I demonstrate love? How do I do that? It's only as I walk with God God's Spirit fills me. God's Spirit overflows in my life. And I'm able, I'm able to demonstrate the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control that only God can produce in me. There's not a one of us here that's married to the perfect person. Oh, they may tell you they are, but they're not. And by the way, you're not either. And yet we all hunger for love. It's the way we've been created. It's the way God's designed us. We find it first and most in relationship with Christ. And it's out of the overflow of that that we're able to demonstrate that kind of love to the one that God has blessed us to spend our lives with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would die for his faith. And yet I close with a quote that he makes concerning marriage. Listen to what it says. He says, As high as God is above man... So high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, it is the marriage that sustains your love. Are you in love or do you act with love? I'll tell you for me, it's both. I love the person with all my heart that God has blessed me with. And I am in love today as I was the first time that we first started building that friendship 12, 13 years ago. But listen, the only way she's going to know that love is when I demonstrate it as an act of my will through commitment day by day by day. I've got a long way to go. The bullseye at times I feel like a lot closer than at other times. But listen, I know what it looks like because God has shown me and told me in this chapter. And so for you, as you look through that chapter, which of those qualities would you say is in need of the most attention for you right now? 
as we close in just a moment, in fact, right now, let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. I want you to think through that list. If you want time to do this later today, just commit to do it. But I want you to think through that list. And I want you to answer the question, which of these qualities is most lacking in my life right now? In other words, which is the one that I have, that I have not demonstrated the way that I should? Would it be patience to your spouse? Would it be kindness? Would it be a, 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 a removal of arrogance and pride in your life? Which of those is most needed in your life? I know the one for me. And then would you be willing to apply humility and at some point even say, you know, honey, God has spoken to my heart and he's dealing with this area of my life and I have failed you here and I ask your forgiveness. And if you're on the receiving end, would you be willing to accept that humility and to extend grace and to say, I forgive and begin to move forward together? God, we love you and we thank you that you have shown us what love looks like through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But you've also told us what it looks like in this passage we've read in 1 Corinthians 13. Love, it is, Lord, it is an emotion, and I'm grateful for that. But it is also a commitment. It doesn't, love doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't move away if the emotions are not there. Those emotions can change sometimes hourly, it seems, depending on circumstances. But Lord, the commitment of love is ongoing. It never ends. And so I pray that in every marriage represented in this place, every marriage to come in the future, that grace and, and humility would be the two qualities that, that hold them strong, fast together. But Lord, that we would be faithful to demonstrate love as you've shown it to us through Christ and in the passage that we read this morning. Lord, it only comes when we know you. And I pray this morning for those that don't know Jesus. They would find love like they've always searched for as they turn from sin and invite Christ to come in and to take over their lives. And so, God, bless these decisions today, some that could be so significant. Today could be a decision made that is the hinge of one's marriage, of one's future. And so bless these decisions today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's